Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an ideal. A quest not for a place, but into the inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Today's guest is the founder of one of the most impactful nonprofit organizations in the world. He's changing the world as it turns. He's made a difference in the lives of thousands and, in doing so, has made a difference in the lives of millions of others. He also happens to be a national TV and radio celebrity, the 1988 NFL MVP, a Super Bowl quarterback, a four-time NFL Pro Bowler, the first quarterback selected in the 1984 NFL Draft, the Walter Payton Man of the Year in 1995, and the all-time leader among left-handed quarterbacks for touchdown passes, passing yards, and completions. He's the husband of Cheryl, the father of Gunner and Sidney. He is extraordinary, though he'd probably never admit it. Please welcome the extraordinary Boomer Esiason. Boomer, great to have it's you. It's great to see you. Well, thank you, Michael. It's great to be here with you, and thank you for those nice, kind words. I, I didn't realize how old I was uh, <laughs> until you started listing all of those things. But yeah, it's been quite a fruitful and topsy-turvy life. But nonetheless, I'm very fortunate to be able to do some of the things that I've been able to do and accomplish a lot of the things that, when I was a kid, never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be able to accomplish. Well, thanks for that, Boomer. And that's actually a great place for us to begin. I'd actually love to begin with when you were a kid and learn a little bit more about your upbringing. So could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and maybe you know, focus on how it was so formative for you? Yeah, well, my father was a World War II veteran, and he settled on Long Island in 1959 in a little town called East Islip. It was uh, farmland back when he moved there. He was on the GI Bill when he came back from World War II, so he got into the insurance industry. He and my mom settled there. They had two daughters, my two older sisters. I was born in 1961. My mother died in 1968 of cancer. So I grew up essentially without a mom. I had two older sisters that were eight, nine years older than I was. So I was seven years old. And I saw my father basically have his whole life torn apart in, in two ways. One was the World War II experience, which any vet will tell you was life altering in it all into its own. And then to have the love of his life, my mother die of cancer and watch her go through the suffering of that back in the 60s left a profound mark on him, I'm sure. However, I will say that he turned his entire attention to making sure that I would be raised and raised properly and brought up the right way, the best way that he could. We didn't have a lot of money. I remember even in my teen years, asking him for his last $5 so I could take my girlfriend to the movies on a Friday night. 
So this was a man who was all about sacrifice. This was a man who put his life on the line for others in the, in the line of war. He sacrificed for me and my two sisters and a man who I never saw ever again with another woman uh, in his life. That's how true love wow. was founded for my mother and father. So I have on my desk a picture of them in their wedding picture, and I'm often reminded of him just of the sacrifices that he made for me. So we were, we were I would say we were a lower middle class family, grew up in a 17,000 dollar home in East Islip, but it was a great upbringing. And, and a lot of the community, Michael, was a lot of World War II vets uh, were moving out there. It was just a, a better place to live. It was getting away from New York City. It was true suburbia. Uh, it was farmland. It was Little League. It was high school sports. And I saw a man that basically sacrificed his entire life for me. Wow. Well, he certainly sounds extraordinary. Boy, so losing your mom at the age of seven, so that I, I assume, but of course can't, I can't relate to that. I assume that that was just an, a life-changing event for you. Do you remember it well? I do remember it a little bit. I remember visiting her at Mercy Hospital in Long Island, and I remember them not allowing me to go up to see her in her room back then. It was all the initial phases of treating cancer, and she was very, very sick, and through the radiation and everything, I guess they just did not want to have children in and around that uh, type of uh, mm-hmm. area. So I remember her looking down from her window and I was out in a courtyard looking up and waving to her. And I do have vivid memories of that. What I remember after that was after she did die, I remember my sisters bawling for about a week yeah. and I remember how hard it was for them. But for me as a seven-year-old, I was pretty resilient. I was not really into organized sports at that point because back then it didn't really start until you were nine. So there were two years in there where my dad had to do something with me. And I think we spent a lot of time going to ball games. His company always would have tickets to either a Met game or a New York Ranger hockey game or a Nick game. And he would always try to take me to those games and we would always have special time together. And he also started taking me fishing on my birthday. So he would always take me out of school from you know first grade or second grade all the way until I was a senior in high school on my birthday and we would always go fishing and I remember celebrating those times with him and those memories basically I used to raise my own kids with so I I tried to learn from the best human being I knew in my life and hopefully I've lived a life that has reflected the life that he lived that's extraordinary, Boomer. And uh, it's, so it sounds like your dad was a real mentor for you. He, he was. I mean, look, I wasn't the greatest kid growing up. I was always getting in some sort of trouble, nothing really bad, but I was always doing something wrong because I didn't have any supervision at the house. Yeah. And back then we had neighbors and my buddy's moms would always kind of take me in for dinner or something else until my dad got home from work. So there was a shared responsibility within our community to make sure that we all had, were on solid footing to the, to the best we possibly could back then. And I, I have great memories of my childhood other than the fact, you know, that my mom passed away, but I got to know my aunts and uncles really well. They would always take me on vacation if they could. I had one part of our family was somewhat successful. My godfather was on the USS Nevada at Pearl Harbor. Wow. And he was the youngest ensign in the Navy, and he was given the, I must say, the purple, uh, the, the valor 
for Medal, I want to say the Navy Medal of Valor. And he was my uh, godfather. And uh, he was well off, and he was one of the first senior pilots at TWA. So he and his wife, my Aunt Vern, my father's sister, would travel around the world. And they would always bring back something for me from somewhere where they came from. And so I had a, an interesting kind of peek at the outside world from them. And then, of course, my mother's sister, my Aunt Dee Dee, used to take me on vacations. But we'd always have to drive because she hated to fly. So we didn't go very far. We'd go to Vermont. We'd go to Maine. We'd go to Massachusetts. And we'd spend a couple weeks away from where I grew up for a summer. And these people all had a profound impact on me. And they were loving. They, they were caring. Uh, they, they took interest in my life. And it's one of the reasons I think all these years later, at the age of 59, I realized all what they were doing to give me the platform that I was able to take and, and use for my own life and then, of course, for my kids' lives. Yeah, it's great that you have awareness around all of that. Were you a good student? I was a good student as long as I was playing. It really is really weird. I was a B student in high school. I, I remember, I think my SATs were 1150. I was not a highly recruited football player by any stretch of the imagination. Everybody sees me now and they think, oh, he must have been a great high school football player. I was a good high school football player back in the uh, 70s. You didn't throw a lot. It's not like today. You can't take today's world and attach it to 1978 when I was a senior in high school. I averaged eight passes a game and we played nine football games. So I, I, I think I threw 80 passes in competition in a season. Think about that. Some kids are throwing 80 passes in a game now. So I, I basically got a, a college scholarship to the University of Maryland because of a basketball game that I played in when a Maryland football coach who was recruiting an opponent that I was playing against saw my athleticism on the basketball court and said, man, I didn't know you were that kind of athlete. Why don't you come to the University of Maryland? And Maryland had one scholarship left. I took it. I didn't even realize what I was signing. My dad was not with me on the visit. And I landed back at LaGuardia Airport on Eastern Airlines, the first airline that I, the first uh, flight that I had ever taken. And he said, how'd it go? I said, I think I signed something. I'm not really sure what it was a piece of paper they put in front of me because my dad did not go with me. And we got home and my high school football coach called my dad and said, your son just got a scholarship to the University of Maryland. So my grades were good enough to get in the school there. Everything was fine until I got to Maryland and I was the 11th string quarterback on the team when I got there. So I went wow. from being the star in high school to 11th string on a team that had 110 players on it. Wow. So I had to work my way through that and I failed out of school a couple of times at the University of Maryland. Did you? I did. I was not I did. aware twice, of that. actually, twice. <laughs> so, I assume that as you entered University of Maryland, you weren't thinking you were going to have a pro football career. So, what did you study? So, I was a communications major initially, okay. RTVF they called it, radio, tele radio, television, and film back then. But uh, again, when I talk about failing out, and it's it's funny to me now, but when I think back to it, it's probably was very concerning to my father, to the people that were in my life that spent all that time giving me their time and, and setting forth a platform that I could succeed. And I almost blew it at least twice. And a lot of it was tied to whether or not I was playing. And so when I got to the University of Maryland in the summer of 1979, like I said, I was like 11th string on the, on the depth chart. And 
you have to earn your stripes in football. Nothing's ever given to you unless, of course, you're the highest recruited guy. Well, I was the lowest recruited guy, almost a walk-on in nature. And I did fail out of school my first semester there because they weren't playing me and I wasn't playing on the varsity. I was playing on some JV squad that they had. And so I had to go to summer school in 1980. So I went to summer school in 1980, redid all the grades, got everything right, came back in 1980 and then was redshirted my sophomore year. And I failed that again (laughs) in that fall. And, and I had to go back to summer school in, in 81, I believe it was, and get myself back, you know, in school again, fight for the job. And finally, I got the job in 1981 as a starting quarterback after two years, due in large part to two guys who got hurt in front of me. And once I got that job, I, I never looked back. I was never going to lose that job again because it meant so much to me. And my grades obviously shot up along with my success on the field. And was it natural athletic ability? Was it just confidence? Was it drive? What, what was it that, that converted it. <laughs> you from an 11th string quarterback to the starter? All of it. I mean, honestly, all of it. And I do remember thinking about my father in the Battle of the Bulge, thinking about my uncle on the USS Nevada. And here I am playing football in college. And it did mean something to me. It really did mean something to me because I don't believe that I would have been able to, to stay in school if I didn't play and I didn't stay in school, the military most likely was going to be the next place I was going to turn to. Mm. And I remember my father even asking me, saying, do you want to go into the Marines? Do you want to go do something that's going to toughen you up or whatever? And I don't know if he was threatening me or he was motivating me or what he was doing, but whatever he was doing was making me want to stay in school, get my grades right, and then fight all the way to the top. And then once I got there, I was not going to let it go. There was, there was just too much sacrifice along the way. And I can tell you story after story after story, and I don't want to bore your listeners, but of how many different levels of adversity that one has to deal with to get to the point where you can be a starting quarterback at a major college university, so or major college, I should say. So I, I held on to that job for three years and then was drafted into the NFL. But even that was a disappointing day in my life. You would think being drafted in the NFL would be the, the height of your dreams and, and what you look forward to. But instead of being drafted uh, in the first round where I thought I was going to be drafted, I fell all the way to the second round. Now, you were nice enough to say in the introduction that I was the first quarterback taken in 1984. But you didn't tell your listeners that I dropped to the second round. Yeah, well, and <laughs> so I did read a, you were pretty upset about that. So I appreciate oh, you being honest really about mad. it. Yeah, I would love to have you talk a little bit about that draft night. That draft day was really a very, very hard day for me to swallow. There are a lot of things that led up to the 1984 NFL draft. I was the I was either the one or the two quarterback, depending on you know what you liked. Uh, Steve Young was the other quarterback that came out. So there were two left-handers believe it or not, at the top of that draft, Steve decided to go to the USFL. And he got a huge deal from the LA Express. And so I was the next quarterback up. And I remember having a press conference. My agent, David Falk, at that time, was not very happy about me having this press conference. And I said at this press conference, Michael, I am not going to the USFL. I did not grow up a New Jersey general fan or a Memphis showboat fan. Uh I grew up a Baltimore Colt fan because of the great Burt Jones. And now what also happened in this draft 
is that the Colts left Baltimore in the middle of March and moved to Indianapolis before the 1984 season and before this draft. Had the Baltimore Colts stayed in Baltimore, Ernie Acorsi, who was the general manager, told me I was going to be their first pick over their first pick in the draft. But wow. because they left to go to Indianapolis, I said I would never play for the Colts. So you have two things like colliding here. Huh. You have the USFL spending all this money on players like me. And you have the team that I wanted to play for, the Baltimore Colts, move in the middle of the night out to Indianapolis and me holding another press conference saying I will never play for the Indianapolis Colts. So it sounds like I'm a pretty demanding guy, and I probably was not that coachable. So I would probably be scared of, of me as a personality as well. And I probably did more harm to myself and one of the reasons I probably fell than anything else. But it was a series of unfortunate situations that took place that forced me to drop. So I was angry uh, that day. And two of my teammates at the University of Maryland were drafted in the first round. And they were nice enough to wait for me to be drafted so we all three could have a press conference together at the University of Maryland that day, which was a big day for all of us, nonetheless, but still for me, a very disappointing day. But again, though, you have awareness around that, and I appreciate your honesty about that. So, yeah, I think I think anytime something happens in your life where it's a perceived failure, maybe by others, is fuel for fire for those of us who are uber competitive. And I think if if I could ever really describe my own personality, it would be is that I am about as competitive as they come, and. I may not be the greatest athlete. I don't have Michael Jordan or LeBron James or John Elway's physical gifts. I mean, I have gifts. There's no question about that. I recognize that. But I always felt like in order to play at that level or to be on that level with those types of players in your league, you have to have a drive and a competitive desire that is going to keep pushing you and allowing you to fight through the negatives like falling on draft day. Well, I'm going to ask you in a moment about your Super Bowl appearance. But before I do that, I have to ask. So you succeeded the great Ken Anderson, who when I was growing up, I loved Ken Anderson. He was just yeah. one of my favorite players. W was he a friend, a mentor? Was he a, did, was he a teacher for you? Well, both. He was a mentor first. Then he became a friend. And then he became my offensive coordinator my last year. Uh, in the NFL in 1997, and I had one of my best runs ever under him as an offensive coordinator. And to this day, he still is a friend. I got there, he was in year 14 of a 16-year career. And my first year I played, I started four games because he and the initial backup, Turk Schoenert, both got hurt. So I had to be pressed into service my rookie year, and I was lost. I think we were probably three and one in those games, but it was more because of the other guys around me as opposed to me doing anything special. Uh, the second year was it was an interesting year because I was battling for the starting quarterback job and Sam Weish, our head coach, did give it to Kenny. And then I remember standing on the sideline playing against the St. Louis Cardinals that year. And I think it was our, either our first or second game. And I overheard Kenny say to, to, to Sam Weisher, our head coach, I'm done. I just don't want to play anymore. I don't want to be, I don't, I just don't want to be out on the field anymore. Wow. And this was, you know, it's, I think it was his either his 15th or 16th year. And I thought Sam was going to put me in and he didn't. He put Turk in to play the body of that game. 
And then I came in the fourth quarter and I think we scored three touchdowns, meaningless touchdowns. Cause I think we won, lost the game like 41 to 28 or something, but we scored three touchdowns in the quarter and our owner, the great Paul Brown, who used to be the head coach of the mm-hmm. Cleveland Browns and the Cleveland Browns were named after him. He moved after Art Modell fired him, told Sam on the plane ride back from St. Louis that Boomer is going to start the next game against the San Diego Chargers and Dan Fouts. And I started that next game, much like I did at the University of Maryland when I finally got my chance. And we lost the game 44 to 42. But I realized that was the game that I knew that I arrived and that I could play at that level and I could play at a very high level against some of the greatest players. So that's when it really clicked for me in 1985. And that's a great transition to get to your Super Bowl appearance. So there's really no but about your career. You you had a spectacular career by any measure. You got to the Super Bowl and you almost won. It was so close. And I'd love to hear more about how you reflect on that, what you learned from that experience. How do you think about that all these years later? I've experienced, Michael, a lot of really high highs and some of the lowest of lows. And to appreciate the Super Bowl appearance of appearance in 1988, you have to go back a year in 1987. In 1987, the Cincinnati Bengals signed me to a contract extension that made me the highest paid player in the league in August of 1987. Now, they were paying me $1.2 million a year, which turned out to be about 70. Well, you know better than I do because of your financial background. I think it was $75,000 a game. Yeah. And that was a lot of money. And I remember Chris Collinsworth, my teammate, saying, man, you're the first millionaire in the history of the NFL. And I said, yeah, it's pretty cool. And I'm wondering, why did they do this? I was a good player for sure. There was no question about it. And I earned my money in 85 and 86. And leading into 87, we had a really good team. And I think they wanted to extend me because they knew that we were going to have a good year. But they also knew one other aspect, that I was the player rep for the NFL Players Association for the Cincinnati Bengals. And I think they were trying to kind of buy me and try to buy my silence. Interesting. And if anything, it actually gave me more confidence in who I was as a player because they were paying me and made me the highest paid player. So after the second game of that year, we went on strike and I was the leader of that strike. And I actually sat down in front of a bus that was carrying the replacement players into the facility that we used to practice at. And I always felt like a picture is worth a thousand words. And boy, that, that not only did it was it worth a thousand words, it was worth 1.2 million words because I was the highest paid player and I was on strike and I was fighting for my teammates and for all of those players that for all those years basically got screwed. At least I thought they did. And, and now that I look back on it, I was right. I did the right thing and I bore my soul and I put my career on the line. And we went 4-11 and that year, and I was booed off the field the last five or six games of the season, especially like the last three games in Cincinnati. I was public enemy number one going into the 1988 season. So you could imagine if social media were around (laughs) back then, there is no way in the world that I would have been brought back as the Bengals quarterback. But Mike Brown, who was the owner's son, Paul Brown's son, and who was the general manager, loved me as a player, loved me as a leader, didn't like me as the NFL PA leader, but liked me as his quarterback. So he brought me back, and now we start on our way to the Super Bowl. 
And we started that season seven and oh. And the most unlikely of seven and O's, as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, most prognosticators had us at like four and 12 going into the season, <laughs> thinking that we were going to be one of the worst teams because we we're just coming off of a bad year, but we had a great team. So I end up winning the MVP that year. So I go from being booed off the field and basically just totally ridiculed in Cincinnati to one year later becoming the MVP of the NFL. So the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And we get to the Super Bowl and we're underdogs to the great Joe Montana and the 49ers. And we, I, I thought we were a better team, but he got the ball with three minutes and 38 seconds to go. Had a march 98 yards, drove his team for a touchdown. Every childhood quarterback's dream to do this in the Super Bowl. And that was, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate memory that we lost the game. But when I think of the journey that happened from the year before, when I signed that new contract in August of 87, to where we were, I think it was January of 88 or 89, actually. Uh, it was a wild ride for sure, and one that I will never, ever forget, even though we lost the game. Yeah. Well, I could listen to those stories all day, but I, I, you've got so much more to talk about. And I'd like to get into your broadcasting career just briefly before we get into the Boomer Esiason Foundation. And uh, you're pretty prolific. I watch you every Sunday. I see you on the NFL Today. And you're on Boomer and Geo. You're you're pretty prolific in social media as well. So my question for you is: Do you do a lot of prep for these shows, or is it just is it does it just come naturally? How much work goes into being out there on such a regular basis? It's constant. It's always constant, and you always have to stay up on the latest news both politically, sports-wise, whatever it may be, especially when you're doing a four-hour radio program five days a week that's simulcast on CBS Sports Network. So you can't show up and not know what the hell you're talking about. And you got to have good opinions. And you got to make sure that those opinions, at least my side of it, is based in fact, because I have credibility, I have reputation, I have everything that goes in behind it. I'm not just an entertainer. Most of the guys that I work with on the radio are entertainers. They, they'll be contrarians just to be contrarians, just to make it interesting for the listener. So I can always play off of those guys, which is, which is a lot of fun for me. But again, you talk about a broadcast career that spans from 1997 to 2020 or 1998 to 2020. When I graduated the University of Maryland, I would hope to get into TV and radio. As a matter of fact, I did a an internship at WJZ TV in Baltimore. And there was a little known local reporter covering all the local human interest stories. Her name was Oprah Winfrey. So we were there together in, 19, in 1981 and 82, I think the summers of those years. And then obviously she wanted to do her thing. But for me, you talk about the highest of highs. I left the NFL football field and went right into the Monday night booth. And I, I replaced Frank Gifford. I remember. So I went from right from the football field to the biggest TV job that you could get in football. And two years later, I was fired uh, along with everybody behind the scenes. And you talk about embarrassing. You talk about the lowest of lows. It's like going from the strike one year to the Super Bowl and then losing it. It's like going to the NFL's biggest TV job two years later, losing it, and then having to rebrand yourself and re-educate yourself and get yourself involved in other things, which is what I did. So where I sit now is in one of 10 great seats on the NFL today. I got a number one morning show in New York. 
I do a lot of other different speaking engagements. And then, of course, I have my personal life, which includes our foundation. So it's, uh, it's pretty busy, but you also have to make sure that you are locked and loaded and ready to go every single day. Again, before getting to your foundation, I, I'm just curious. So as you stay prepared, as you do research, do you have a team that's helping you or are you doing all of this research yourself? For the radio show, I, that's all me. That's uh, 100% me. I do have a producer that would give us suggestions of things that we may want to talk about and things of that nature. But usually the show is improv. It's pretty free-flowing. Uh, down here in New York, there's a lot of different things to talk about. There's always something on the back page that is of interest to all of our listeners here in New York. And like I said, it's not just football. It could be human interest stories. It could be political stories. It could be guy talk. You know, all that kind of stuff that you try to mix in with the foundation of it being sports. So you do have to stay up on everything. As far as Sunday's show on the on the big network, the NFL Today, we do have a group of researchers to make sure that we know every trend that is taking place in the NFL. It's all NFL specific. You got to be up on all the statistics. You got to be up on all the injuries. You got to be up, up on all the drama. You got to know who's getting fired, who's getting hired. Who's hurt? Who's not hurt? What is this coach saying about that team? What is this player saying about that player? I mean, there is so much to digest, and that's one of the reasons why we have such a big research department at CBS. Thank you for that. I could I could talk to you all day long about football because I am a huge NFL fan, and uh, I'd love to do that, but... I'm also a fan of people that are engaged in deep philanthropy and altruism. And, and now I, I do want to shift to the Boomer Esiason Foundation. So you and your wife founded the Boomer Esiason Foundation. I got a little bit of conflicting information as I was doing my research, and I saw on your website it says that you raised about you've raised about 115 million dollars for for CF research and services. I've I've since also come into possession of information that says that it's actually over 150 million dollars, but it's <laughs> a lot of money. You've raised a lot yes. of money, and. This all, of course, began with the diagnosis of your son, Gunner, I believe at the age of two with cystic fibrosis. And I, I, would, I would be honored and love it if you would be willing to tell us about that experience and tell us how it led to your decision to take action. Yeah, the highs and the lows, again, find themselves in my personal life as well. When Gunnar was born in 1991, I was in the midst of a terrible season. He was sick, and we didn't really know why. 1992, I had my worst season as a pro. Gunnar was still sick. We had no idea why. I was still in Cincinnati. I finally got traded out of Cincinnati, got to the New York Jets in 1993, and that's when we got the diagnosis that Gunnar had a genetic deformity known as cystic fibrosis, which basically is a total body disease, but it really affects the lungs with bacterial infections, and you got it's a very labor-intensive disease, so the kids can live somewhat of a normal life, and it kind of changed my life in, 1990, in 1993. So I decided to use the platform of the NFL put a face on this disease. And Gunnar and I graced the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1993, and it was called the Quarterback's Crusade. And my crusade was all about one simple thing, was to take all the things that I've learned from my father that we talked about earlier today and apply them to giving Gunnar the greatest childhood he could ever have and create as many memories with him as I possibly could, all while still fighting cystic fibrosis. 
And because his mom, Cheryl, was so dedicated to making sure he had everything he needed and took such great care of him, it allowed me to go out and raise money. So we've raised almost $200 million. 200, wow. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so I have to update the website. I'm sorry about that. Actually, it's under <laughs> I, your I, bio. Your bio is where it says 115 oh, it million, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll update that. Then. Okay. So anyway, it's, it's, it's been, it's been, a, I guess, a labor of love, if you will, trying to do this. And I got involved because of a, a guy by the name of Frank DeFord, who lost his daughter, Alex, the CF at a very young age. I think it was the age of eight. And he wrote a book about it and he did a movie on it. And I got embroiled in cystic fibrosis well before Gunner's diagnosis, even before Gunner was born. So that was 1989. I first became aware of CF. And then lo and behold, you know, here comes the lower of the low. Gunner gets diagnosed with CF at, at the age of two. So we decided and I decided to put this foundation together, make a difference in the world. And we have. Gunner is now 29 years old. There has been a major breakthrough in the last two years with a drug called tri. CAFTA that has come from Vertex, which is located in Boston, where you're sitting right now. And that has been years and years and years and years of research and billions and billions and billions of dollars to get us to this point where Gunner now at the age of 29 is at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. And he's kind of restarting his life because of this drug and the impact that it's had on his, on his body. And what I'm seeing are all the fruits of the labor that all of us as parents of cystic fibrosis children have done over the last 50 years. Because if we didn't have the foundation of the previous families that have lost loved ones to cystic fibrosis, we would have never been able to accomplish what we have accomplished. So while I'm so happy for Gunnar and so fulfilled as a dad, I also still have the reminders of all those families that went before us and lost loved ones to CF well before the age of 20, well before the age of 10, like Alex DeFord did. So I'm certainly not in this fight by myself, but I think that I've enhanced it, hopefully, and put a name on it, and we've made a big difference. You certainly have. This is really the model for success among many disease-based organizations. I know that from personal experience. And I'd actually... I, I, what you did with Vertex is, is, again, a model because those who are in the know about the disease space is that what we understand is that the government needs to provide funding. You get support from the nonprofit sector, which is what you did, but you do need industry to participate. And your partnership with Vertex is is a model that's looked at by, I, I, do you have awareness around that, that that's a model that's been looked at by many disease organizations now? Yeah, the, the National Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, under the direction of Dr. Bell, came up with a venture philanthropy model, a business business model. Joe O'Donnell, one of the businessmen there locally in Boston, was the spearhead to raise all this money so then we could actually incentivize companies with money that we could support them with and receive a royalty off of the success of any of these drugs that may come to to, to, to fruition. And Vertex is one of the, the, the companies that has benefited from that, and we have benefited as parents and families of cystic fibrosis. And that's where we put almost all of our money went into drug development. This is why I feel like I'm an expert when I'm talking about COVID-19 and vaccines and the FDA and, and the billions of dollars that are being put into trying to bring a vaccine from the test tube to the patient. I know how long it takes. 
I mean, it took us yeah. almost 30 years to get to where we are in cystic fibrosis. Now, that only affects about 30,000 people uh, locally. But when you think of a global pandemic and you think about the amounts of money that have been put into this and the amount of science and bioscience that have been put into this, it's no wonder that it's happening within about 11 months from when we first saw COVID-19 hit the shores of our country. It is remarkable what is happening in the bioscience arena in regards to this pandemic. So I've lived it, I've seen it, but I'm not shocked that it's come this quickly. Yeah. Well, you have a, a spectacular NFL legacy, but your your legacy for the world that you're leaving with the Boomer Esiason Foundation is extraordinary. And I was thinking about, about how you added your celebrity to it and that undoubtedly that's helped you raise dollars, raise awareness, pursue your advocacy programs. But I was, I was thinking about the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the Elton John AIDS Foundation, the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation for Paralysis and Spinal Injury, and, and even the Doug Flutie Foundation. I am, of course, from New England, yep. so the Doug Flutie Foundation for Autism. And uh, you are right there with all of those organizations. You truly have changed the world. Well, it's something that I think we all have been touched by in our own personal lives. And it's one of the reasons why we try to do what we do. We make no apologies for exploiting the uh, the platforms that we have. I know Doug personally. I know exactly what he's gone through. I know Michael J. Fox. I know what he's gone through. I think of Bill and Melinda Gates and how much money they have just actually poured into so many different charitable endeavors. And it's and I, I can't even begin to tell you, Michael, how thankful I am. Uh, to be a part of a small little success story, but to see the people that have supported us over the years, it gives me great, great warmth when I think about the human altruistic nature of how we try to help each other when when asked. And and I've lived it for 27 years, and I've seen it up close and personal, and it's nothing short of amazing and a miracle. So if our listeners want to support you, this would be esiason.org? That's the best place to go. You can make a donation there. You can find out about us there. We are a four-star charity navigator uh, foundation. We take great pride in that. I hold down expenses significantly. And I, like I said, I try to use every a- avenue that I possibly can to raise money. And it's been successful thus far. Yeah, and you and Cheryl are still the co-chairs. <laughs> yes, we are. Our names are still on the, on, on the front door. But I got to tell you, the thing that I'm most proud about out of all of this is watching Gunnar grow into the the young man that he has become. And the amount of advocacy work that he does on behalf of all CF families and how he has embraced his role in all of this. He's never once come to me and said, Dad, I feel sorry for myself. I can't do this. It's been the opposite. He is all in, has always been all in. And that's the thing I'm most proud of. So I have in front of me the the Boomer Esiason Foundation mission statement, and I'm actually going to read it, or at least the beginning part of it, and then it's going to lead to a question. So the Boomer Esiason Foundation is a dynamic partnership of leaders in the medical and business communities, joining with a committed care volunteers to heighten awareness, education, and quality of life for those affected by cystic fibrosis, while providing financial support to research aimed at finding a cure. And I read that mission statement because it now leads me to, to I think, my final question. Well, maybe my second to last question for you, which is, do you consider yourself to be 
personally mission-bound? Have you ever thought about whether you yourself have a mission statement? My mission statement uh, is probably, I guess I've never been asked this question like this. My mission statement is simply, I will not fail. I will not, I will, I will have bumps along the road. There'll be adversity for sure. There'll be those highs, there'll be those lows. But in the midst of all of that, I'll never lose sight of what my ultimate goal is, no matter what I'm doing. And in, in, as far as our foundation is concerned, it's always being pragmatic. It's also being realistic. And it's also listening to the voices of the people that we're trying to help. So I guess that I guess my mission statement would be never stop driving towards success and, and never allowing anything to get in the way of that. Excellent. Outstanding. So what's the future for Boomer Esiason? Hopefully retirement. <laughs> I mean, I've been going so hard for 25 years and I still love what I do. I'd like to continue probably until I'm about 65. So I'm 59 years old. I turned 59 years old. Not easy in a pandemic for any of us. But I will tell you that for me, the pandemic has made me realize just exactly what life is all about. I think most people can reflect back on some things in their lives that they'd like to do better or they'd like to be better at. So for me, it's, it's, been a, it's been a little bit of a pause because there's no traveling or any of that stuff going on. But I could see myself retiring in about five years, calling it quits, and hitting the golf, hitting the golf ball a lot, a heck of a lot more than I'm doing now. And playing hockey, too. I do play hockey. That, that's my competitive side. So mm-hmm. I picked that up when I was 37. And yes, I am in a men's league hockey uh, you know, uh, arena, a world, I should say. And uh, it gives me that feeling that I'm back in the locker room with the guys like I was back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Well, thank you, Boomer. Thank you for your time. Any parting words for our audience, uh, including anything that you want to promote or advocate for? No, I think you've done a great job, Michael. I appreciate you having me on. And it's, it's not easy to be successful. All I can tell you is you got to be driven. you got be, you got to be committed. And most, most importantly, I think when people are involved with you, you got to be above board and you got to be honest and you got to have character. And hopefully that's what uh, is reflected through our foundation. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the extraordinary Boomer Esiason. And you can follow Boomer Esiason on Twitter at 7Boomer Esiason. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with 15 offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.